The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Ecclesiastes 9, 7-10. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil, all which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we look at your word together and consider these words, this very sobering book that we work through together, I pray that you would help us uh, to live and to rest in the fact that you are not only in control and that you are guiding this world, but that you want us to be filled with joy and to get at it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would experience the pleasures of this life under your smile and under your fatherly care. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are, I'm realizing that my sermon notes are not in order. Here we go. One, two, three, four. Um, We are uh, looking at Ecclesiastes 9, and as you may have picked up, uh, the title of this sermon is uh, Carpe the Heck Out of This Diem. Um, This is off the Latin phrase, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day, and this passage in many ways um, is a bit of a commencement speech, so to speak, at the end of Ecclesiastes. It's something that I feel like many of us have maybe lost or forgotten or given the COVID dynamics, you've had cars drive by to congratulate you for your commencement of graduation, either from high school or college, but you have not had the pleasure of sitting through a very boring and dull uh, commencement address. One of my favorites, since you have not had that, that I'm going to read for you now, a commencement address from David McCullough, Jr. This was at a high school in the area about 10 years ago. Um, He's an English teacher at that high school, and his commencement address... Uh, gain national attention uh, for the following reason. Oh, sorry, there goes communion off the table. His commencement address included uh, this, uh, these words. You are not special. You are not exceptional. Contrary to what your U9 soccer trophy suggests, your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain um, uh, corpulent purple dinosaur, that nice Mr. Rogers, and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your maternal Cape Crusader has swooped in to save you, you're not special. (laughs) And at the end of his commencement address, he says this, locally someone, I forget who, from time to time encourages high school scholars to carpe the heck out of the diem. The point is the same. Get busy. Have at it. Don't wait for inspiration or passion to find you. Get up. Get out. Explore. Find it yourself. Grab hold with both hands. None of this day-seizing, though it's yoloing, should be interpreted as license for self-indulgence. Like accolades ought to be, the fulfilling life is a consequence, a gratifying byproduct. It's what happens when you're thinking about more important things. Climb the mountain not to plant your flag, but to embrace the challenge. Enjoy the air. Behold the view. Climb it so you can see the world, not so the world can see you. Go to Paris and be in Paris, not to cross it off your list and congratulate yourself for being worldly, and we might add, just so you can post it on Instagram, 
exercise free will and creative, independent thought, not for the satisfaction that they that you will that they bring you, but for the good they will do to others, the rest of the 6.8 billion people, and those who will follow them. And then you too will discover the great and curious truth of the human exist experience is that selflessness is the best thing you can find for yourself. The sweetest joys of life then come only with the recognition that you're not special because everyone is. This is how uh, David McCullough Jr. Uh, welcomed these high school graduates about 10 years ago into the adult world. And in some ways, it is a very similar reflection of Ecclesiastes 9. If Ecclesiastes 9 is, in a certain sense, this uh, commencement address, the reason that it is here is the reason that we have commencement addresses is to give perspective, right? There's a lot that's been accomplished, and we are now trying to get perspective moving forward. In Ecclesiastes 9, we have meditated on the unfairness of life, the injustices of life, death, and the reality of suffering, and we have worked through all those things. And here, as we come to the close of the book, the teacher is trying to give us a bit of a pep talk to say, okay, now what do we do with all of this stuff? Um, Death and suffering and injustice are real realities, and this is how you've processed those. What do we do moving forward? And so you see in Ecclesiastes 9.3, we have this simple statement. Um, here, I have to get my book open. Ecclesiastes 9.3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same happens to every, um, same event happens to all. Just like David McCullough Jr. would say, nobody is special, and so get after life, Right? There is nothing special about you. There is nothing special about the ways that you have been gifted, though each of us are different. And yet, we live under the hand and providence of this one God who designs and governs this whole world. And so what are we supposed to do with all these great realities? And so the main point of this passage, what do you do? Make the most of your life because we rest in the providence of God. Make the most of your life, right? We are going to see this here in verse 10 of chapter 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever you're going to do, get at it. What is the point, what is the pep talk, so to speak, at the end of this passage? God's in control. He's at the helm of the universe. He is guiding this world forward. None of this is going to be fair, so just get after it in life. It's not exactly the sort of pep talk that you want, but the Bible doesn't always tell us what we want to hear. So how do we make the most of this life? What does it look like to make the most of life under the providence of God, his care and governance? What does it look like to make the most of it? And so we're just going to see five things out of this passage, five simple statements. And the first one we're going to look at here in verses 1 to 3. By the way, when it says 3a on a point or like a verse number, that's because there's a sentence that breaks in the middle of a verse. And so this is the first sentence of verse 3a. So first thing we're going to do is how do we make the most of life? Just do right. That's the first thing, verses 1 to 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3, do right. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both of these are before him. That's a reference to God. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, To him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears um, is, uh, is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. 
Well, it's interesting here at verse, verse 1, uh, he focuses in, he doesn't exactly make everybody even, but he does say that everybody ends up in the same place. Verses one, verse 1, he says, um, This I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise, so he pulls out the righteous and the wise and their deeds, and says, look, nobody actually understands anything about this life, right? But he says, even the righteous and the wise, who you would think maybe have a better handle on things, uh, they actually don't even understand the most of everything. They don't actually understand everything that's going on on the inside, right? Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. So he's basically kind of going after our motivations, right? Do we love what we do? Do we hate what we do? Do we love the people that we love? Do we hate the people we love? There's mixed motives all the time. And he says, even the people who are righteous and wise, even the people who've studied the, the inner soul of what it means to be a human, don't actually understand they aren't the best judge of themselves. They can't actually understand the full extent of their knowledge or their, the full extent of the motivations. We're not, we aren't the best judges of who we are and our works. Our motives are often hidden from us. Right? I think as you age, you begin to see this, that, well... I really ultimately just did this good thing, like I put the dishes away because I didn't want, you know, I wanted, well, I could do that to, like, make my wife happy. That's a pure motive. I also could have done it just because I was trying to avoid my kids, right? <laughs> There's a lot of good and bad motives for good things that we do. And that's ultimately the same way it is for all of us, right? If we begin to evaluate 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, our motives from good things that we accomplished earlier on in life, we discover that maybe there were some hidden um, evil motives within that. And we see that in church history um, as well. So we, if we think about major, um, major guys in church history, men and women in church history, uh, there are many things to laud and to love about what they did, um, and there's many things that are problematic. Some of us might think of like um, George Whitfield comes to mind as one of these examples of guys that he's, he's held up as an example of like, man, like, can't you believe how much got accomplished through George Whitfield? And then we begin to see, like, well, maybe there were some things there that weren't so great. So George Whitfield, in the course of his life, preached something like 18,000 sermons, right? He led the first great awakening, the first great revival between the U.K. and America. Um, he was so popular that in both the U.K. and America, he was second in popularity to guys like George Washington. So people would say, like, uh, I know who George Washington is, kind of like everybody in the world knows who Michael Jordan is, right? And then whoever second is to Michael Jordan... That's who uh, George Whitfield was, right? He was best friends with Benjamin Franklin. He did all these great things. He um, helped start an orphanage in Georgia. He um, was so powerful in his preaching that there's reports that, as, if I understand this correctly, people could hear him preaching from a mile away, right? That is without amplification, right? <laughs> I'm sure my neighbors can help hear me when I'm yelling at my kids. But I do not think that you could hear me if I was yelling from the top of, of City Hall out in Goffstown. Like, nobody, you couldn't hear me a mile away. George Wilf could be heard a mile away, 18,000 sermons. And yet, on the other side of things, George Whitfield was the governing force that brought slavery into Georgia, right? He actually pushed for slavery into Georgia so that he could get cheaper labor to support the orphanage that he had helped found in Georgia. That's not a great track record. All the pain and suffering and all the injustices that came out of the slave trade in Georgia, in some ways, rest on George Whitfield's shoulders. How do we evaluate those type of people? That's a sermon for another day. But in a certain sense, it, 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 it kind of gives some clothes to this statement that people don't actually understand their hearts very well, right? Whether, verse 1, 
whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both go before him, and that's a reference to God. God understands these things. He sees the heart, what our motivations are. We don't actually understand what's best for us at times. We don't understand our motivations. But the main point of this, this verse is to say, pursue good, do good, pursue righteousness, right? It's the righteous and the wise that are held up before the Lord as being sustained and upheld. But don't think too highly of your own rules, right? Verse 2, it is the same for all since the same, uh, to the, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears an oath and he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. Even those who walk in righteousness, who walk in, in, in doing the right things, cannot be guaranteed that their, their rules in life get them the exact things that they want. Often we want to say that we, uh, we want to do the right things so that we get the right results. And Ecclesiastes is saying, just do the right things, do what pleases God, and trust the rest to him. Like you can't control the right the, the, the results of your actions. You can't control you can't create a rule that gets the things that you want. Do the right things simply because they're right. Right? We see this actually in uh, Philippians. Paul kind of uh, the example of the Apostle Paul, he pulls this out for us. Philippians 1, uh, 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, mixed motivations. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, I proclaim Christ and in that rejoice. I rejoice. So you see in Paul, he's just simply saying, like, I'm just going to do the right thing because it's right. I can't even get the right results from these guys who are, like, on the same team as me. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to do the right thing. So... When it comes to taking the most out of life, right, to, to quote Anna from Frozen 2, just do the next right thing. <laughs> just whatever the right thing is, whatever pleases God, just go after it. Like you can't control what tomorrow is going to happen, what's going to spring out of your right deeds, deeds today, tomorrow. Don't try to control those things. Just go for it, right? Do whatever the right thing is. Love your neighbors as yourself. Don't, don't worry or don't be consumed as to whether your, your neighbors are going to hate you tomorrow or it's going to be wasted effort. Do the right thing at your job this week because it's the right thing. Whether your, your managers are going to let you go next week or they're going to add on to your workload next week or whatever they're going to do. Just do the right thing. Get at it. Give it your, all your might. Go to bed and then entrust that you can do the right thing in the power of Christ tomorrow. All right. So the next thing that he picks up here, because we got five things to get through and I'm kind of wasting my time a little bit. But we're going to pick up here in verse 3b. Um, so how do you make the most out of your life under the providence of God? First thing is to do right. Second thing is to have hope. 3B, let's pick up here. Uh, three, uh, my notes are all over the place here. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who joins with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. <laughs> Here is a great uh, statement to all of us today. 
you as a living dog are better than a dead lion. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure that's commending or not, but the statement is simply making this point. If you are alive, you have the hope to change. The book is closed for those who are dead. Right? If we are alive, we can have hope to change. We can have hope that life will get better. We can have hope that life can change. We can have hope that things will be different tomorrow. They will be different today than they were yesterday. Right? It is better to die to your expectations today than to die and have all of your expectations dashed. If you die today, you will live and find the power of Christ to help you to change. Right? You see that this is what we're pulling out here is just quite simply... Right, verses, verse 4, he who is joined with all the living has hope. Right, there is something about being alive that offers change. If you see that your death is the end of all your desires, and that Christ has walked that path ahead of you to take your death, his death in your place becomes a gateway into his life, and joy on the other side of the grave, and his life becomes your hope. And your hope in Him changes your life now. Those who look to Christ find that all the things that we could have desired in life without Him actually would have gotten us a dead death, a death that is twice over. That's what in the Genesis when it talks about um, you will surely die, it's a, it's a double death. But those who look to Christ and see that their death and their desires and expectations that would have led to their own death have been taken on Christ, we find that our life is filled with the good things of hope because our hope is secured in his life. I think for this, this verse speaks to those of us who feel a bit stuck in life. Right? There's a sense in which uh, do you feel stuck like things aren't going to change, like it's always going to be the same, nothing's going to change today or tomorrow or anything like that. For those of us who feel stuck, the fact that we are alive means that God still has something to do in us and to offer us and to give us in Christ. And if we feel stuck and that we are convinced that things are never going to change, we have ultimately allowed death to be the ruler of our lives and not to allow the life of Christ to speak hope and change for us. In helping people, um, in my, in my, uh, my, li- my life as a pastor is often to help people to recover their humanity in whatever the context in which Jesus has put them in. To help them recover, to, to in a sense, uh, become more human in Jesus uh, than they were yesterday. And what I find um, in my pastoral counseling that is most helpful and effective for people is to begin to, to awaken their um, hope-filled, redemptive imagination of what life could be, right? If death is the ruler of all things, then you should feel stuck and things are never going to change. But the fact that you're alive means that Jesus has something that he is doing in you. And so if he has something to do in you, there is something he's going to give you by his spirit to help you grow and to become more like him. And so what I find helpful is uh, in helping people process there's this area of sin in my life or this area of suffering that I can't, can't continue to move forward in is to begin to imagine what would a redeemed version of yourself look like in this situation? What would a, a more hope-filled version of yourself look like in this situation? What would a more pure and a more um, loving a version of yourself look like in the situation because effectively what you're helping people do when you begin to ask those questions is to live out, look, if you're alive and kicking, there's still hope for change and that means growing to be more like Jesus. So in Colossians uh, 3, this is one of my favorite kind of counseling passages that I think through. Colossians 3, put on then as God's holy one, 
holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one or uh, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Right? These are things that we put on, and so we begin to imagine ourselves. What would it look like for me to be um, a more patient version of myself? Like, what would that look like? Well, that's the get after it dynamic of Ecclesiastes nine. Right? If you're alive. That means that there is still something of Christ to do in you in that area, to grow to be into that, be like that type of uh, self-giving, patient, less anxious, peace-filled heart person, right? So if you have, if you're alive, you have hope, right? So how do you carpe the heck out of this DM? All right, Uh, if I'm alive, there's something that God still has to do with me, that he wants to do in me, and that putting the Colossians 3 stuff into our redemptive imagination, imagining what would it look like to be a redeemed version of myself, get unstuck and have hope. Okay, I got, we got three more things to go. We're cool. The AC just kicked on here. I don't know what it's like for you guys at home, but it's getting a little bit hot in here. Okay, so make the most of life. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 and 10. How do we do that? Enjoy everything, right? This, um, this is uh, not, anyhow. Sorry, I can get, when I preach these things, I get all these kid movies in my head. And so, like, all these, like, these things come into my head. So, like, um, in Zootopia, I'm sure all of you have seen Zootopia, right? Shakira sings, right? Try everything. This is not quite the same thing as that, but it's kind of similar of, like, just go after it, enjoy everything. Ecclesiastes 9, uh, 7 to 10, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let's stop right there. This is the thing that is fascinating to me about this paragraph, kind of right in the middle of Ecclesiastes 9. It's not go and enjoy it because God's made it, right? It's not go and enjoy it because it gives glory to God for you to enjoy these things. Those are both true things. You can find those things said all over the Bible. But this one has a particular nuance for God has already approved what you do, right? You're going to go uh, have a July 4th feast. That was last week. If you're going to go have a, you know, a cookout this afternoon and enjoy those burgers, and if you're a vegan, you know, you got those mushroom burgers or whatever those things are, right? If you're going to go and enjoy those things and get after it and enjoy it, you don't do it so that you get God's joy in what you do. That is true. You do it because God has already approved. He's already made you. He's designed you to enjoy those things. He has designed you to look at food and to enjoy these things to experience life. He's made you, he's approved, he's already done it to receive these good gifts with joy. He has already made you to be a joyful, pleasure creature, right? So whatever you do, eat your, you know, when you eat your bread, um, so I say this with all respect, bread is a good thing. <laughs> all, I know what it's like, you get in this like anti-carb diet or, you know, gluten is evil, whatever. Look, I'm just saying it's in the Bible. <laughs> Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine, right? And this is obviously, we're in a recovery center. I need to say this, right? This is not saying like, hey, it's good to be day drinking and it's a really great thing to be getting totally wasted at nine o'clock in the morning. It's not what we're saying, right? We're not condoning being an alcoholic, but this is saying wine, to the extent that it is healthy and good for you to be drinking, drink it with joy and just have at it, right? It's a good thing for God has already approved of it. Delight in this world. Right, there's this thing we, um, in Christian kind of circles, um, we would talk about like we don't want to be worldly, right? This worldly world. This is actually, the, so there's a sense of like being worldly is like 
dirty and evil and it's wrong and like the world's kind of nasty and gross and so let's not be let's not be worldly well what that means when we say that sort of worldliness is like don't be conformed to this world right don't have a mind that you know things like the world in the same way don't have a mind that uh, don't have a heart that desires the same things but there's a certain worldliness that the bible is commending right there is there are pleasures in this world you know, go to Paris and enjoy Paris, right? Go to the Merrimack River, and if that's your thing, in the winter, jump in the Merrimack River <laughs> in the winter. You guys are all crazy to do that. But there's a worldliness that, that about this of, like, the world is made for pleasure and joy, and just go after and enjoy it, right? It is, it is designed for us to enjoy. There is, um, in the ancient world, there was this uh, heresy that came up called Gnosticism, which said that the world is kind of dirty and gross, and that we should really be embarrassed of any of our desires. Um, and so the body's gross, and so all those things, like really holiness is like reading your Bible, hold up in your, in your, um, in your room in prayer. Like that's pure holiness. And then, you know, eating a, a burger or enjoying your spouse or anything like that is kind of like gross and disgusting. And I think that that still kind of pervades through some of American evangelicalism. And the route is that is just not true. God has made you. He has already approved of what you do because he designed you to be a joy-filled creature, right? Verse 8, let your garments always be white. Let oil be, let no oil be lacking on your head, right? Oil on your head was kind of like the ancient world version of like take a shower, you know, like just look like you're put together, right? And then <laughs> I just love it. It's like let your garments always be white. Like, bro, the Bible loves fashion, right? If you're like into fashion and you like like how, like obviously I'm not... <laughs> Some of you people are, like, into fashion. Like, you like good clothes and all that stuff. Bible's all about that, man. Look good, you know? Look sharp. <laughs> it's cool, you know? Like, go after. There's a pleasure in that, right? And then verse 9, enjoy the wife from, uh, uh, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that God, that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life, Right? Guys, guys, I just want you to understand, like, we'll talk about this, we've talked about this in other sermons, but sex is a good thing. God's designed it. It's made for marriage, and it's made to be enjoyed, right? We are designed to be the pleasure creatures that enjoy each other and enjoy the life that God has given us. God has made these things for us to enjoy, right? And verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, thought, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going, Right? What this, is, what this is commending us to do is just do something. Just do something and enjoy it. When I was in college, I don't know if you can relate to this. When I was in college, I got kind of like in this like three-month loop, this head loop of, am I, gonna, am I choosing to do exactly what God wants me to do? And what does God want me to do? And can you kind of like get in this like mental loop of like, what's God made me to do? Am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I doing exactly what God designed me to do? And if I'm not doing that, I'm missing out on what God designed me to do. You kind of get in this mental loop of like, what am I supposed to do? And you like end up kind of like surfing the web at three o'clock in the morning, reading weird articles and watching YouTube videos and like not doing anything and like eating rice and beans for like three months on end. Or that may have been my experience in college, but you know, it was just like, what do you do with my, what do I do with my life? And this verse is just one of those kind of helpful, like eject buttons out of that and just to say, just do something, man. God's sovereign. He's not made it super like a secret for what he's made you to do. What, how, you know, are you, do you enjoy educating kids? Maybe you should become a teacher. You know, being a plumber is a great profession. 
whatever God has made you to do, however he's designed you, like, don't get too caught up in, like, am I doing the, the right exact job? Especially, I think, for folks 18 to 25, we just wrestle with this of, like, what am I supposed to do? It's like, whatever God has given you, whatever is immediately in front of you, right? It doesn't have to be out uh, someplace else. It is just quite simply, what is God giving you to do right in front of you? Help those around you. Get a job that provides for those for yourself and for your family if you have one. Just do something, right? Don't get too locked in on like, am I doing the exact right thing? You know what? The Bible is really clear. Love your neighbor and uh, love those around you in your neighborhood. Like, it doesn't tell you whether you're supposed to be a plumber or a carpenter or a lawyer or a doctor or anything like that. Like, just do something. God's cool with it, right? Unless you're like doing something like wickedly evil, like selling people on the black market. Like, don't do that do something that's good for other people and loves other people and walks in God's designs. Like, all right. So, verse 11. Are we cool? Are we going to move on? Are we cool? Like, all right, see, this is a great thing about like, not having a camera to preach into. I've got people who can tell me, like, yeah, you're good. Yeah, we've heard enough. Let's move on. Okay, verse 11. <laughs> live, uh, get, make the most out of life. Live content. Again, I saw under the sun. The race um, is not to this. I'm sorry. And again, I saw under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to, um, to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken out, of an evil, out in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So how are we looking at this and saying, Live content. Well, the point of this verse is basically to say, like we were saying earlier, you have no way to control what happens in your life, right? You have no way to control when the craziest events happen. You have no time, you have no ability to decide when uh, your job is going to tank in the market and when your job is going to do well, right? Those who run the fastest race don't get the bestest, best times. And if anything, all the scandals with, with Lance Armstrong and all that stuff show that People who cheat often get the awards for people who aren't the ones that deserve it, you know? So how do we, how do we kind of live this life? I think it's just simply saying, like, look, don't get all caught up with getting what you deserve and all that stuff. Just live content and trust that God's going to provide for you. This is what you find Paul doing in the end of Philippians 4. Uh, end of Philippians 4, uh, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of, needing, of being in need or that I've learned whatever... But I, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I think kind of the undercurrent of what Ecclesiastes 9, verses 11 to 12 is kind of saying is that whatever your heart worships is what will be required for contentment, Right? If your heart worships winning the race because you're a racer or getting everything that you deserve because you're intelligent, getting the riches because you're intelligent or getting bread because you're wise, you will be sorely disappointed in life. But if your heart is content to worship God and to have Christ himself and everything else is just a bonus thrown in, then your heart will be satisfied because your heart worships what your heart worships is what it will be is what it requires to be content. And if you worship anything less than Jesus himself to be content in life, that thing will chew you up and spit you out. 
If it's money, you will never have enough money. If it's sex, you'll never have enough sex. If it's food and clothes and all that stuff, you never have enough food. You never have enough Adidas. You'll never have enough clothes to satisfy your heart. If it's work, you'll become a workaholic and you can work 90 hours a week and die at 32 years old. If it's um, your reputation, you will never be able to manage your reputation sufficiently so that everybody likes you. Whatever it is, those things will never be enough. But if, if your heart requires only God himself through Jesus Christ, which he freely gives you, then you will be content whatever comes your way. Making the most of your life because you rest in the province of God, so live content even in joy even in the joys that he's given you, even the good things that he's given you, even these desi- the worldly things that he's designed for you to enjoy, they are gifts from your maker. So live content and have an open hand. Now we're going to finish up verse 13 to 18. Everybody cool? We're kind of tracking along here. All right, so making the most of your life because you rest in the providence of God, verses 13 to 18, and we're going to close out the chapter with these words. I've And the point being making the most of your life, so speak wisdom. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and, see, and it seemed great to me. So he tells us a little story. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great war sieges, a great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remember that poor man, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The works of the wise, heard and quiet, are better than the shouting of a, of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, and no one sinner, but one sinner destroys much good. There's a lot that we could unpack here. There's certainly a lot that we could feel applies to our contemporary situation with a bunch of yelling out in public, but the simple reality is that this verse commends don't worry about being rec- recognized or heard. Speak wisdom, uh, speak wisdom, lean into situations, and don't worry about your reputation. How do you make the most of life? Well, just speak when it's needed, right? This little story basically says, like, there was this great war coming, and this one man who was a hobo on the side of the street um, spoke enough wisdom that the city was saved, and then nobody remembered him, and he was forgotten, and then left back talking in the coffee shop to people who wouldn't talk to him. You know, like, he... It was largely ignored. And we read the story and we kind of think, well, why didn't they recognize this guy? Well, that's just the point of the story, right? He doesn't have to be recognized for it to still be wise and to still love his neighbors and serve others. In America, we have a propensity and a desire to hero worship. We love to celebrate people who do great things. How many times have we watched celebrities do things up in public and think, I did that last week and nobody, nobody retweeted me a million times or I said that last year and nobody cared. That's the point of this verse. Look, don't worry about it. Like, that's the way it's always going to be. We love to worship people who do things and, like, celebrate them and virtue signal one way or the other for recognition and popularity. And it's just kind of like, I, I see this all the time with pastors. Like, it drives me nuts. But how many pastors, both on the right and the left, they do things, and I'm just kind of like, man, you guys are just totally doing that to be seen and known. And I know countless pastors here in the city, uh, I know Mike Goff and John Rivera and David Pickney, who do the exact same things and more and never get any national attention. But the point of this passage is to say, who cares about all that stuff? You, all you have is God presiding over your day today. 
Who cares if you get the retweets or the Facebook likes or the recognition or the interview? Just speak wisdom. Whatever the situation is, just make the most of life, speak wisdom, and entrust all the rest of it to God. Right? It's going to be okay. It's actually probably better for your soul's health that you don't get the recognition. It's probably better for your soul's health that you just say it and then are forgotten. I wonder if this leads us towards beginning to meditate more deeply um, as we begin to close out this passage on the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus says, how do we pray? We pray for our daily bread. We just pray for what we need today. Actually, God has given you enough to enjoy today and to be faithful today and to go after today and get at it today, to enjoy, to to delight in, that you, you can't possibly manage the anxieties and pleasures of tomorrow. So just be faithful for today. God's at the helm of the universe. We can pray for our daily provision. We can pray for our daily joys. We can pray for our daily faithfulness. We can pray for the daily use of our words. We can pray for the daily use of our lives to enjoy and be faithful under this, under this God who presides over everything and just get after it and just open-handed lead the rest of God because he's the one that's going to call the shots in the end. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Make the most of your life because we rest in the providence of this God. We can make the most of life when we wake up and rest in this profound, troubling reality. God is sovereign and provide, and provide, and he rules over the world. And this world, though it is crazy and unpredictable, bends towards the glory of God. And Jesus Christ still stands at the helm of the universe, driving it forward. And you can entrust your life to his care. So I think that's where Ecclesiastes 9 leaves us. This bit of a pep talk. Carpe the heck out of this diem. Go for it. Get after it. Enjoy this life. Don't worry about managing tomorrow. And you will find in your soul a more deep, rich joy of Jesus' smile and gifts in your life. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.